Acts 11. Christ over culture is the message. Before we get into the passage, if you remember last week, we talked about bursting the bubble and uh, the encounter of uh, Peter with Cornelius and how God was prepping those two individuals and how there was this major shift in the ministry of Peter to reach out to Cornelius and the other non-Jewish, or as the Bible calls it, Gentile believers there in the city of Caesarea. And we're going to continue on uh, in this narrative, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, those of course being first century Jews there, uh, took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. When Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me, and when I had fixed my gaze upon it and was observing And I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at at the moment, three men appeared before the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, and saying, Send to Joppa, and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he shall speak words to you, by which you will be saved, you and all your household." And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as He did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how He used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall baptize with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as He gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down, and they glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord, and the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Spirit and of faith and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Amen. We'll stop there. I know that was a long passage. Thanks for bearing with me. We're going to build on last week's message of bursting the bubble. Last week we talked about Peter and Cornelius. God had prepped Peter with this uh, vision of the sheet coming down saying, 
no one's off limits. If I have cleansed them, that's it, right? I know you've got to retrain your mind uh, uh, to think what you can eat, but I want you to know this particular truth that I'm doing. And at that time, he goes off to Caesarea, meets with Cornelius, and they have a wonderful encounter, right? Uh, they, uh, Peter speaks to the entire gathered assembly at the house. The Holy Spirit falls down and they begin to speak with other tongues just like on the day of Pentecost. And everybody is in amazement that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to these folks in Caesarea. And so word travels fast. I mean, you know, if you think about it, especially in the, our day and age when we have internet and all the other media outlets, of course it, it travels like wildfire across the globe. And even when it's word of mouth type of technology, right, or lack thereof, even in the time of Jesus, the word would spread, right? It would go from house to house, on the corner of the streets to the next, from marketplace to marketplace, and people would be talking about what was happening, right? And so this news of Cornelius, his family, all of the gathered friends that were there receiving the Holy Spirit, this was big news. This was something that was not common. And if you were a first century Jewish Christian at the time, this would be something that would definitely perk your ears. You would be thinking, what? I've never heard of such things. How can this be happening? And so from that, if it's shocking news, we're all the more gossiping about it, or we're telling other people, and it began to spread, and word came from Caesarea all the way down to Jerusalem. And it reaches the ears of the leaders there, and they're upset, right? And from their vantage point, rightly so. Peter should not have been speaking to such folks. He was not a good first century Jewish Christian at the time. right? And they wanted to reprimand him. And so Peter makes his way down to Jerusalem and he begins to plead his case. Hey guys, don't be upset with me. This is exactly what happened. And in orderly sequence, he begins to relay all of the events. He said, I had a trance. This is what the Lord spoke to me. I went there. God gave the Spirit. Who was I to stand in God's way, basically? And you can almost imagine a pause. That the room filled with these bigwigs of the early church. Peter standing almost as if on trial. Everybody fixated on him, listening to his every word, looking at his every movement, and with conviction, he's not backing down here. With conviction, he stands before them and he relays all of the information. And when he's done, they said, who am I? How could I stand in God's way if he were to do this? And you can almost sense in that room this eerie silence, this wrestling of the heart. You know that moment where you have to rethink your value or what you thought was true? And you're wrestling in your heart and you're trying to make that deliberation of should I fall over to this side or should I entrench myself even further in what I believe. And that that wrestling of the heart, this is what's happening in this room right now. Because they are forced to reconcile something that happened that would radically shift how they believe faith should be lived out. We're not talking about worship music preference. We're not talking about decor. We're not talking about small groups. We're we're talking about something so fundamental to the identity of those early believers. And this was being shaken at its core. It was being prodded. The finger was being jabbed into it. It was uncomfortable to listen to what was happening. 
Because they thought they were going to invite Peter down, reprimand him, he'd have a change in mind, and go about his nice first century Christian business again. But suddenly they've come face to face with some news. God has opened the door to non-Jewish Gentile believers. He give, gave them the same spirit He gave to us. We are no longer this exclusive group. We no longer have the special access or privilege to the Holy Spirit or to God. And God has opened this up. For an entire generation, they've been taught that we are the sons of Abraham, children of promise, and they believed in the forefathers of the Jewish tradition and how they came to where they did generation after generation. The Pentateuch, the books of Moses would be recited, and this cultural identity of who they were, how they lived their faith, it was strongly entrenched. And now in this moment, with this man speaking of these events, suddenly all of this is crumbling. Everything that they thought. Have you ever had a moment like that? Where a professor came to you and presented to you a lecture or some information where everything you thought about before then suddenly was brought into question. Have you ever had an encounter at work or in the home or someplace in your life where you thought you knew what you were doing and you were doing a good job at it and suddenly you didn't think so anymore? This is it right now in the church. This is what's happening. And chapter 11, verse 18, star it, underline it, highlight it, do whatever you can do except rip it out out of your Bibles, okay? Highlight it. Verse 18 is one of the most pivotal verses in the entire Bible. Acts 11, 18. I know it's not well quoted. I know you got John 3, 16, Matthew 28, and you got Acts 1, and you got all of these famous verses. But Acts eleven eighteen is such a dramatic and pivotal verse. This is when the church leaders in Jerusalem said, well then. <laughs> but I don't think it was this nonchalant, well then. Okay? It wasn't like, okay, I'm just going to have to believe it. But after being presented with this information by Peter, after being rocked to the very core of their faith identity, Somebody stands up and says, okay, I can't believe it. Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Key word also. You can almost sense the hesitation, can't you? You can almost sense a little bit of regret there. It's like what you had access to solely suddenly became available to everybody. Do you know when you have like secret information and you feel so special for having that information and suddenly everybody knows it and you're like, oh man, I lost my edge. (laughs) Kind of, right? And for these folks, I guess God also wants them. This verse is the official buy-in of the early church to God's plan. Acts 1.8. Do you remember Acts 1.8? I I gave you this, right? Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This is ultimately what God wanted, right? I'm going to start from this city, and I'm going to go around the world. And this gospel will be preached to all people, to all nations. This is God's plan. 
And interestingly, the only two regions he specifies in between city and world are the regions of Judea and Samaria. Okay, To go from a city to the rest of the world, that seems like a massive undertaking. And to, to symbolize, to encapsulate how this gospel will go from a city to the ends of the earth will be encapsulated in these two regions between Judea and Samaria. If the gospel can go from that, that region of Judea into Samaria, it's now released. It has the power, the ability. It has been set up to go to the rest of the world. But it needs to go through these regions. It needs to go through here. It needs to go through this road here. Right? And I overlaid this on a map for you before, right? And I talked about how Peter was faithful in ministry and he went from Jerusalem and he was going through the regions of Judea to Lydda to Joppa and how Cornelius was in Caesarea, which was in Samaria. And Peter found himself right on the border there, real close, right? Just God was prepping and pushing him along, saying, this is what I'm doing. I know you don't know yet, but when you get to this city, this is where I'm going to be leading you. And he breaks him down through the vision. He breaks Cornelius down and they end up meeting and then the rest is history, so to speak. But to go back to this timeline, right? To think about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. These two regions being key. I want now to transition from Judea and Samaria. This is the buy-in, verse 18, right? This is the church saying, okay, I guess so. I guess it's not a Judean Jewish thing anymore. I guess now God has granted life to those who don't reside with us, who have a different culture, a different background. They don't have the same faith stripe as us. And I guess God has granted the repentance that leads to life for these folks. And then suddenly after verse 18, we come to verse 19. And we're introduced to a church, the church of Antioch. And the church of Antioch, in my estimation, is the first symbol of what just happened here, right? Because if you think about it, the church in Antioch, right? It says from verse 19, some, some folks were going out, they were being scattered, but the Jewish guys, they were only preaching the gospel to other Jews, right? You see the favoritism here. Just because you're in a foreign city, it's like, for example, like, you know, I'm a, a, a Korean American, right? When my parents went to a different city, they, they somehow can hang around other Koreans and they can get by speaking only Korean, right? That just happens, right? You can go and find your ethnic enclave in whatever city you go to, right? Especially here in America. It was the same back over there. You had a Jewish diaspora. What was that? A Jewish representation, communities scattered all throughout the region in different cities. And just like today, you had Jewish enclaves in those communities. And so in the city of Antioch, you have other nationalities or ethnicities represented, and you have the Jewish folks there in Antioch as well. And so when other first century Christian Jews, they would, for whatever reason, be scattered or go to different cities or regions, and they found themselves in Antioch. And when in Antioch, who are they looking for? The Jewish J-town, right? They're looking for the, the Jewish folks. And when they see them, hey guys, and they begin to preach the gospel to those folks there. And it says that they were speaking only to Jews in verse 19, the end of that. But, verse 20, right, there were some. Some of the Jews who were of Cyprian and from uh, Cyrene, right? Cyprian birth in Cyrene. Some of those folks, it says that they began to speak to the Greeks also. 
And so this is now a shift, okay? And so most of the first century Christians are only speaking to other Jewish folks. But there were some that would speak to the Jews, of course, but they spoke to the Greeks also. And so now you begin to see a shift in the focus of ministry. Because prior to Acts 11.18, it was all towards Jewish folks. But now, post chapter 11, verse 18, starting with the church in Antioch, we begin to see a shift in evangelism. We begin to see a shift in mission. It wasn't excluding now their heritage, but it was including the broader community. And now they were beginning to speak to whoever it was, Jew, non-Jew, it did not matter. And there in the city of Antioch, something powerful happens in the church, right? Barnabas is sent by the church, right? Being a good man, full of the Spirit, right? He's sent to Antioch and there he ministers. As soon as he gets there, he's like, whoa, I can't believe what is happening. This is a revival. This is not church like he's ever seen it before. Right? It's not that he's never seen spirit-filled Christians before, but he's never seen a gathering of a Christian community like that before. We're talking about Jews and non-Jews. This was big in that day. And so Barnabas goes to the Antioch church and he says, Hey man, I can't believe what has happened. He's encouraged by this. And then he goes and he says, i got to find Saul. Right? And he goes and he gets Saul from Tarsus and he comes back and then for an entire year they begin to teach the Bible. What a powerful first experience this is for Saul. What a powerful first experience. For Saul, he is now beginning in Christian leadership. And his kind of hands-on training with Barnabas now. And the first community that he's beginning to lead and teach the Bible with is this kind of bicultural, biracial, multi-ethnic type church setting in Antioch. The first of its kind. Because up until now, if you went into a church in the first century, it was filled with just Jewish folks. But in Antioch, things shifted. You began to see Jew and non-Jew worship together. This was probably upsetting to some. But this was the move of God. This is what God was doing. This was a turning point. I mean, we're talking about of epic proportions. I mean, if you think about when women were granted the right to vote or the civil rights movement in America. I mean, how major of a cultural shift that was, right? I know uh, for most of us here, we didn't live in that era, right? But if you think about the, the cultural dynamics and shifts that had to happen in order for the mainstream of society to accept those types of changes. We're talking about the same thing in the early church here. To accept this type of congregation was not easy. But this is exactly what God was doing. And Saul understood this. And he understood this powerfully. This Antioch experience made an imprint on his life and ministry. It changed what he wrote about, how he spoke, what he taught. If you read all throughout Paul's letters, right? If you read all throughout his letters, he talks about this. He says, forget what you think you are in color, in cultural identity. And I want you to begin to see something that's above and beyond that. There is one verse in particular that is the climax, I think, in statement of this. It's Galatians 3. For you are all sons of God, he says. You're all sons of God through Christ 
Jesus, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, that what you look like, not Jew or non-Jew, but you've clothed yourself. Christ is your identity. He's covered your cultural identity, and the identity that others should see of you is not your cultural one as the preeminent one, but of Christ. You've clothed yourself in Christ. And then he goes on. There is neither, I mean, how more straightforward can you get? There's neither Jew nor Greek. I don't want you to consider yourself Jew or Greek, slave or free, or even man or woman. Forget about gender differences, other things that we use to differentiate ourselves. Forget about all of that. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. And he is now including that word Abraham's descendants. That was an exclusive thing for the first century Christian. And he's saying emphatically that if you belong to Christ from way back in the beginning, from the promise that God gave to our forefather Abraham, that includes you. Heirs according to promise. And so, at the church in Antioch, they were first called Christians. First called Christians. Why is that significant? Why is it important that Luke here, as he is recording this narrative of the early church, describes what they were called in Antioch here. Why is that significant to us? Because this is a a shift in thinking here. I want to bring back something from the Gospels. Jesus, at the tail end, He was crucified, right? After being dragged through the streets and finally hanging on a cross, there was this plaque that was nailed to the top of His cross. Y'all remember what that says? king of the Jews. Up until now, to the non-Jewish world, Christianity was a Jewish movement. That if you were a follower of Jesus, you were a part of a Jewish movement. Up until now, in the first century church. He's king of the Jews. And so for the non-Jew in that world they kind of looked at Christianity or not, it wasn't even called Christianity. At the, they, they looked at the religion of those Jesus guys, those one wares those, those Jesus folks. The Nazarene. They looked at it with a lens of like, that's you guys, not us. And so in Antioch, In a sense, they were stripping themselves of this Jewish identity of Jesus being king of the Jews. They're saying, wait a minute, we are all followers of Christ. We are Christian. And suddenly, the identity of believing in Jesus was no longer focused around the cultural identity of Jew. And it was around the person of Christ. You were a follower of Christ. This is significant for us. And so I say firstly, as a main point, to be Christian is to herald the preeminence of Christ over culture. 
And I, I, by no means do I think culture is not important. It is. But I'm talking about the preeminence here. I'm talking about what is supreme. What must go above all else? We spend a lot of time talking about what distinguishes us from other folks. Don't we? That we, we define groupings of people. That we go into spaces and we find our identity and what makes us different from somebody else. And too often, I think, cultural differences are used to license and legitimize bigotry and separation. Like we say, okay, we're just culturally different. And we allow that understanding, we're culturally different, to legitimize and license bigotry and separation. Insensitivity. Like, oh, they just don't understand. But to be Christian is to understand culture is a part of it, how I grew up, my heritage, my ethnicity, that all of these things, yes, they are there, and they are important, but there is something that goes above all else when we follow Christ, and that is our identity in Him. I mean, just to go back to that verse, clothe yourselves with Christ. I can't emphasize this enough. He, he, like I said, you're not Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You're all one. You're all sons of God in Christ. And he reinforces this. Stop focusing on what separates you and focus on what unites you. Focus on Christ. He's hammering it home. If you belong to Christ, you're an heir of promise. And he reinforced this message. And when we herald Christ over culture, we begin to see things differently. And we begin to see ecclesial unity over ethnic identity. And ecclesial, I use that to talk about the unity within the church. Right? That when I understand that Christ is above culture, I begin to embrace the unity of the church over the Identity of the ethnicities represented. The differences. And I begin to do church differently. I begin to see the power of worship differently when this all begins to click. And again, this doesn't diminish the importance of ethnicity in our lives. It's important to understand and embrace who we are as ethnic people. But we must not embrace it at the expense of the church's mission. That God created ethnic diversity as something to be celebrated, not something to be used as divisive. But too often we use it to divide. And I think in the church we have the opportunity to, to show a different side. To be able to say that Christ is above all else. To know that despite our differences in background or who we are or what we have, that we follow the same Lord. That a free man and a slave can worship the same God on equal footing. That a man and a woman come together in the place of worship and they are of the same place. And for the first century Christian, a Jew and a non-Jew have that same promise given to them. This is powerful. I want to begin to end. You guys, you come back. I'm going to end with a passage too. And so kind of get your Bible ready. Um, I'm going to read a passage in Ephesians. 
Ephesians chapter 2. If you can, you can flip there. Ephesians 2. Before I read this passage in Ephesians, let me give you two summary points. First is this. Your Christian mission is cross-cultural. It is, right? If the gospel is going to go from a city to the ends of the earth, it's going to cross some cultures along the way, right? The Great Commission is talking about all nations, all men, all tongues. And so the mission of us as a follower of Jesus is cross-cultural. If I'm uncomfortable with cross-cultural encounters, I need to shift something in my heart. Something didn't get set right in my faith if I'm uncomfortable. doesn't mean I have to be perfect at it. doesn't mean I have to be the best at it, that I, that I can go into any ethnic particular community and be able to preach the gospel. Yes, we're bound by language and, and different cultural understandings, and these are all things that can hinder the gospel's presentation. But when push comes to shove, every Christian must understand that his and her mission as a follower of Jesus is cross-cultural. Secondly, that Christ's work and power is sufficient. Because a lot of the times we, look, we can look at this mission and feel like, wow, I'm a little overwhelmed at this. I don't know. You know. There are things that I just don't understand about those folks. I don't know if I'm the best one equipped for that. Right? But I want us to know that what Christ did on the cross and His power within us through His Spirit is sufficient for the ministry that we have. You know, one of the uh, experiences that I had, I mean, when Jenny and I got married, we moved to Korea in 2005. And in 2006, I think it was early, the early winter of 2006, uh, the church there in Korea that we were a part of, there was a woman pastor, lady pastor, that was supposed to lead a seminar for women in Kenya. All right? But for whatever reason, she couldn't go and lead this seminar, this women's leadership seminar in Africa, West Af- uh, East Africa. And for whatever reason, the church decided that they thought it would be a good idea to ask me, a young Asian male, to lead an African women's leadership conference. I, pff, I, go figure. I, I don't know, right? Uh, Robert, you're perfect, right? East Africa women leaders, oh, you, you fit it right on the note, right on the button right there, right? For whatever reason, the church thought it would be good to ask me to lead this conference. And I tell you, when I first heard it, I was like, um, I don't know if I have anything to say. <laughs> I just didn't know if I was the right fit, right? But I gave the Christian answer. I'll pray about it. <laughs> and I did pray about it, right? I went home, and in my prayer time, I was just asking, God, why? Right? And I, I kid you not, right? God was speaking to Mark, why are you limiting what I can say through you? And it didn't take long for me to go back and say, I'll go. And I'd be lying if I said I wasn't nervous, because I was. But I remember preparing for that, getting on that flight. I remember going there, driving three hours, looking at giraffes and rhinoceroses, and going three hours into the country to lead a seminar for about 300 African women. And I remember getting up there for the first talk. And the first thing that you say as a young Asian male is important, right? And so I recounted my story of how odd I felt it was, but how thankful I was that I got there. And I began to recount my testimony of how insufficient I felt in leadership, especially early on, for how I felt disqualified 
for a lot of reasons of that I just couldn't serve God. And I recounted my hardships in my early uh, 20s and what I went through in serving God. And I related that to where I thought they were and how most of the women there felt disqualified from ministry and how God can use them above all of their disqualifications, self-perceived or real, and do things through them. And the entire week that I spent with them was, in my estimation, it was wonderful, it was powerful. I was so thankful for that, right? That Christ's work and power is sufficient. That we might not have all of the linguistic prowess, the cultural awareness, but when we rely on what Christ has done and His power that resides within us, any ministry that unfolds, that presents itself, cross-cultural or not, that we are prepared for. Let us embrace those opportunities. And so I finish with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one, and He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. This is the work that Christ has done. And if you read on through this chapter, He talks about how we are the dwelling of God. We are no longer strangers or aliens. And it talks about the community that God desires for His church, for the followers of Jesus. Let's be that church. Amen? Amen.